Okay. Uh, I will tell you too, I'm not going to worry about it, but when we do, if we do get a white horse here, we will probably, uh, what we'll probably do is ask you all to move closer to this area, okay? Uh, right now we'll let you set apart, uh, but we may, we, we may pull you together uh, at a later point in time. But we're studying the book of Deuteronomy together, and the book of Deuteronomy, look at Deuteronomy 1, verse 3. Deuteronomy 1, verse 3. Uh, there is only one specific date in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 1, verse 3. This is what it says. It came about in the 40th year, 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all the Lord had commanded him to give them. So, the 40th year, the 11th month, the first day. How long did Israel spend in the wilderness? 40 years. 40 years. If this was 40 years, this was the 11th month, and the first day, and this is at the very end of the wilderness period, isn't it? And so Deuteronomy, probably this whole book, these 34 chapters, takes place within a couple of months. And what we have in Deuteronomy is Moses preaching and speaking to the people. And he is preparing them for his departure, which will take place at the end of this book. He is preparing them for his departure. He is preparing them to go into the promised land. They are about to go into the promised land. How will they live? What will they do? Uh, he is doing this. So these are sermons by Moses to prepare them for his departure and to prepare them for entrance in the promised land of Canaan. Preached over a short period of time. Now here is an outline, a, a very broad outline of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy opens these are the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 1 verse 1. And that is kind of a preamble. Uh, and then you have a historical prologue. Now, why I have 1, 6, 1, 6 to 4. That is chapter 4. Uh, if that uh, is looks confusing to you. But chapter 1, verse 6 the chapter 4, you have the historical prologue as God describes his past relationship with Israel. Then you have general stipulation. Remember when Jesus was asked what the first and greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's what we would call general stipulation. And then in chapters 12 to 26, you have specific stipulation. For example, we are told in chapter 12 that one day there will be a specific place where God will put His name within the land of Israel. And that Israel is to go and worship there. Ultimately, that was Jerusalem. 
Right now, we're not told Jerusalem. We're just told God is going to establish His name in a specific place. In Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you have a list of blessings if the people are faithful to the covenant and curses if they are disobedient to the covenant. And then He calls on witnesses. I call heaven and earth to witness this day. Now, there are other outlines you can give of Deuteronomy. But let me tell you why I mention that. We had the book of Deuteronomy for years. The book of Deuteronomy, of course, written in Hebrew, translated in um, Greek and Latin. And we get our name Deuteronomy from those translations from Greek and Latin. We have the book of Deuteronomy for millennia. But it was discovered not too many years ago as archaeologists uncovered and then translated treaties from the ancient world that treaties from the ancient world follow these basic steps. Particularly what were called Hittite vassal treaties from about 1500 B.C. to about 1200 B.C. These covenants would start out by saying, these are the words of the great king. Then, they would call for, they would give a historical prologue as the great king would talk about all he had done for those people and why they should be in a covenant with him because of all he'd done for them because of all the ways he blessed them. Then the king would give more general stipulations. And one of the stipulations that was often given was you need to love the king. Now, when a king spoke of the people loving him, he wasn't speaking in emotional terms at all. But he was saying that you're going to be loyal to me and you're not going to enter into an alliance or make a covenant with any other king, with any other nation. Your loyalty is to me and me alone. And these would then give specific stipulations of how the people were to live. And a series of blessings and curses. And then calling of witnesses. Now, this is a place where the ancient Near Eastern treaties and the Hittite treaties differ a little bit from the biblical case. Because in the Bible case, the witnesses called are heaven and earth. In these treaties, the witnesses that are called are the gods. Of all the various nations. But you see, in the Bible, there is one God. And so the point of trying to establish that God communicated the book of Deuteronomy to his people in terms that they were totally familiar with in that day and time. Because often great kings make treaties with a group of people along the same lines, the book of Deuteronomy. Where God makes a covenant with Israel. What questions do you have about that? Or thoughts about that? 
Eleven days journey from Mount Horeb to Cadiz Barnea, where they are now. What, what's the point of saying that? It took them 40 years. Yeah, an 11-day journey took 40 years. Why did an 11-day journey take 40 years? Because of their rebellion. Because of their sin. Even if you say, okay, that's one person traveling in the wilderness. One, you can make the journey 11 days. If you do it with herds and flocks and children, it's going to take a little longer than that. It's not going to take 40 years. The reason they're still in the wilderness is because they've been disobedient and because they've been guilty uh, of being rebellious. But God doesn't give up on them, which is an amazing thing here in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I want you to also see that he explains what the book of Deuteronomy is. In verse 5, Moses undertook to expound this law, saying, to expound this law. Now the word that is translated expound is used two other times in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 27 and we'll find one of them. Deuteronomy 27, verse 8, is one of the two times, uh, two times outside Deuteronomy 1 5, this verb is used. Deuteronomy 27, verse 8. You shall write on these stones all the words of the law very distinctly. That's what the New American Standard 1995 says. You write on uh, these stones all the words of the law distinctly. The word that is translated distinctly there is the same word translated expound in uh, Deuteronomy 1 5. And what they're doing in Deuteronomy 27, they're writing the words on stone in a way that's clear that everyone can see. What does it mean that Moses is seeking to expound the law? We'll look at Deuteronomy 27 verse 8. Moses is trying to make the law clear. He's trying to make the law understandable. He's trying to make the law so that people can read it and understand it and see it and see what it means. And that's the purpose of teaching. To try to take something to make the point the text makes to make it clearly in a way that people can understand. And that's what Moses is going to do here in the book of Deuteronomy. He's going to expound the law. Do you know in the book of Deuteronomy that God doesn't speak in first person very often? God doesn't say, I will do this or I will do that. What God often does in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is expounding what God has already said, making clear what God has already revealed. Now, God tells the people in verses 6 to 8, He told them to move on from Mount Sinai or Horeb. Do you remember those of you who were in the book of Numbers? Do you remember how long Israel camped at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb? How long did they did they camp? 
It was, it was about it was about a year and two months or I think it was in the second it was in the second year is what you're thinking of, David. It was the second year that they released from the mountain. I think the second year it might have been the second month, according to Numbers ten and verse eleven. So they're probably there uh and they, well they you know so they so they uh, in the second year they move on and God's gonna reveal some things they're going to happen in verse 7. He gives some of the geographical uh, contour of the land. Verse 7, he describes the geography of the land. But in verse 8, he describes the promise of the land. God's word that this that I will give this to you. In verse 8, see, I have placed the land before you. Go in. And possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to them, and their descendants after them. This word swore is going to appear three times in chapter 1. But here's the first. The Lord swore he was going to give this land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, I apologize. Let's see if I can use this on the fly, Josh. Um, and um, do not have high expectations about what I'm trying to do. Uh, um, let's see. Yeah, that's what I was afraid of. Okay, let's see. I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to see if I can erase this and give you a little bit of outline, and I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm not going to be able to. Um, we're going to need a, a different technician working on this. Josh, if you want to just erase all of that, I was going to give you a little outline of Deuteronomy 1 itself. But what happens in Deuteronomy 1? <laughs> There's a reason I can't get this down. It's a really complicated process. You see, you see that. Um, we've already stated 1, 1 through 5 is the preamble. 1, 6 through 8, God is saying it's time to move away from Horeb. There are two main sections after this. In verses 9 through 18, Moses cannot bear... The burden of the people alone. Moses cannot bear the burden of the people alone. Now this goes back to Exodus 18 and to Numbers 11. You may remember in the book of Numbers that Moses even prayed that the Lord would take his life because he could not bear the, the burden of the people. And then, and, and I apologize that this writing is so pitiful. The reason that it's so bad is because one of the things about using this, at least that I've figured out so far, is that you're not to put your hand on the screen. You tried to write on something without putting your hand on it. So I apologize that it looks so terrible. But verses 19 through 46... We'll talk about the sending of the spies, which that will tie back to Numbers 13 and 14. Now, Moses goes back to Exodus 18. You remember what happened in Exodus 18? 
The people were coming to Moses all day long. And Moses was judging the people from morning till night. And Jethro says, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. You're going to wear the people out. What you need to do is you need to appoint other men who are trustworthy men, who are honorable men, to judge the lesser matters. Let them bring the bigger matters to you. You teach them the way of God, but let them judge the lesser matters. And Moses, the text says it seemed good in Moses' sight. And so they choose, they select men to deal with the lesser legal problems and they will take the bigger ones to Moses. Moses is reviewing this in verses 9 through 18. Now there's also language, there's also language here. Uh, that comes from Numbers 11, but the, the situation described is more from Exodus 18. In verse 9, I spoke to you at that time, saying, I'm not able to bear the burden of you alone. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousand times more than you are and bless you just as he promised you. How can I alone bear the load and the burden of you and your scribe? Choose wise and discerning and experienced men from your tribes, and I will appoint them as your heads. You answered me and said, the thing which you have said to do is not good, so I, excuse me, the thing which you have said to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and appointed them heads over you, leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and officers of your tribes. Then I changed your, I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Moses said, I could not bear the burden of you. I couldn't take care of all the legal cases that come up or all the strife. And the reason he couldn't, look at verse 10. What was the reason that he could not bear the burden of all the people? There's too many, and the particular the way we're learning is because God had his promises to the people and multiplied them like the stars of heaven, like the sand of because they are, there's so many, because God has kept his promises to them, and as a result of this, they can't, he, he can't bear the burden of the people. Now, I want you to notice something. In verse 9, when Moses said, I am not able to bear the burden of the people alone. In the same language in verse 12, how can I bear the load and burden of you? Moses said, you were a load too heavy to carry. He uses the same Hebrew word in verse 9 and verse 12. And that Hebrew word is used two other times. In this chapter. Two other times. Look at Deuteronomy 131. 
Deuteronomy 131. And in the wilderness, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as a man carried his son. The word carry and carry in verse 31 is the same word in the original language used in verse 9 and verse 12 for Moses that I cannot bear. This is my point. Moses can't bear the burden. But God bears the burden. Moses can't carry the people. But God carries the people. The best of men, the strongest of men, Moses, is not able to bear his burden. The Lord is able to bear the burden. Always, when you talk about the qualifications for deacons in Sunday night sermons, always, when God is choosing someone, it seems like there are qualifications for the office. Qualifications to their fitness. And in verse 13, choose wise, discerning, and experienced men. Choose wise, discerning, and experienced men. It said in verse 15, two of those three terms are used. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise, and experienced men. God wants wise men, God wants deserving men, God wants experienced men to fulfill this position, to be judges among the people. And they're going to judge between a man and his fellow country, Pharaoh. And they're also going to judge Pharaoh. Notice in verse 16, the alien who is with him. And as Sarah pointed out recently, uh, when we were in number 35, about how often you see the rights of the aliens referred to in Numbers 35, even the alien who took a life accidentally could run to the city of refuge and find protection. I want you to judge fairly between a man and his countrymen. I want you to judge the aliens among you fairly. And he said in verse 17, do not show partiality in judgment. Partiality means lifting of the face. And the idea is you're favoring one over the other. He said, don't show partiality. You don't favor the rich over the poor. The poor over the rich. Either. That you're both warned against in the Old Testament. You don't favor either. You show justice. And here it's the same thing. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and great law. If someone comes before you and presents their case, and they have millions of dollars, and another person comes and presents the same case, and they don't have a penny to their name, the outcome should be the same. Because he said you're not judging based on whether they're great, you're not judging on whether they're small, you're judging on what is right. And he says in verse 17, you shall not fear man, for the judgment is God. The judgment is God. It's God's judgment you're rendering. It's God's standard you're seeking to walk by. You're not trying to please them. You're first and foremost seeking to follow God's standard. Because even if it doesn't please man, God's standard is who you are. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. 
if your taste is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me, and I will hear it. That's what Moses was called by Jethro, wasn't it? It's too hard for the people, let them bring it to you. He said, I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. Now, what did I not cover right there in those verses that I should have talked about? And really, let's try to work next time on sitting closer together. I think that it'll be more, uh, you'll be quicker to speak if we do. But, but what, what thoughts do you have? What questions? Often, 
in an ancient world, kings would graft a land to a particular nation, a particular people. Um, and some have compared this kind of to a divine land grant. That God is giving this land. The relationship between God and Israel is a marriage. And this is, in a sense, their home. Is, is that the kind of thing that you're asking? I know it's probably not into the root of it, but uh, uh, if you have further thoughts there. I, I mean, I think we get to the root of it than the end of the book. But yes. It seems to me that it's a, it's a bigger relationship than just a thing again. Oh, yes, it is. The land signifies his presence and his blessing. And so much is involved in that. Yes, it's always bigger than just the immediate thing. So, yes, it's a very good, good observation. Now, before we get into this lengthy session, and this lengthy session, it's really going to be good for those of you who just studied numbers, even if you can't read that pathetic writing. Um, sending spies, sending spies to the land in Numbers 13 and 14. This will be a good review of that. But let me ask you this question. I mean, you, do, you don't have to, and you, I'll give you a chance, but if you don't answer it, we'll talk about it some more. Why would this be so important to occupy over half of chapter 9? Why would that be so important to occupy? In the last couple of months of Moses' life, why retell that story? Sarah? Well, part of it is to explain why it took them 40 years to make an 11-day journey and also to remind them of what happened the last time they were standing on the border of the Promised Land. Last time they were there, they sent 12 guys in, they looked around, they came back, they believed the wrong 10, and they <laughs> went back to the wilderness. And now it's like, are they going to go to the border of Canaan again, send in some people and not believe the report that God can take okay. care of them and have to go back for another 40 years. Very good. It's a very, very cool answer. I mean, that's, that's correct. First of all, it explains why they're still here 40 years old. Second, and I think that's the most important thing that Sarah was emphasizing, is that in this text, the people of Israel are in the same situation right now. They're in the same situation. They are right here on the brink of the promised land. With the land being promised them, and yet they're actually stronger and mightier than them. Are they going to learn from the examples of the past? Are they going to learn from the failures of the past and not repeat them? What's the old saying? Those who do not know the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. And there's also an addendum to that. Those who do know the lessons of history are doomed to watch as other people sit around and repeat them. <laughs> as those who don't know history repeat them. Uh, and um, think about it. It's a good say. Uh, I found that critical. But they are in the same situation and they face the same challenges. And I think in a lot of ways we face the same challenges. It may not be that we're on the border of Canaan waiting to go in and take the promised land, 
But, but let's, let's just see what the text says. Verse 19. We set out from Moreb and we went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites, just as the Lord our God had commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now I'm going to ask you, by the way, particularly for those who have been in Numbers, what are some points here that are a little different than how things are presented in Numbers 13 and 14? I said to you, you have come to the old country of the Amorite, which the Lord our God is about to give us. Verse 21. See, the Lord our God has placed this land before us. Go up and take possession as the Lord the God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us, that we may search out the land for us, and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go, and the cities which we shall enter. The thing pleased me, and I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. They turned and went to the, into the hill country, and came to the valley of Eshkol, and spied it out. And then they took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, they brought it back, they brought, brought us back a report and said, It is a good land which the Lord our God is about to give us. So God says, Go up and take the land. Verse 21. Go up and take the land. That word go up is a very important word in this chapter. But, but go up and take the land. What was the people's response when God said, Go up and take the land? Let's send in spies. Now, what what does this tell us that Numbers 13 did? Numbers 13 just said the Lord commanded them, take one man from each tribe and send them in his spies. Here we find it was initiated by the people. And how do we reconcile that? I think it's initiated by the people. And you can see it's initiated by the people because of their weak faith. God said in verse 21, go up and take possession. Do not fear or be dismayed. But they said, let's send men in as fathers. The people's faith is weak, so they need to send in fathers. Why does God consent to it? Why does the Lord command these men to go and search out the land? God intended it as a way to teach the people about how good the land is. He intended it as an encouragement to the people as strengthening their faith to go up and take the land. After all, Joshua was one of the two faithful spies. And even after this, he had unfaithful spies. Joshua didn't sit to spies. He was in Jericho again. In Joshua chapter 2. And so, God does it to build their faith. And the people come back from the valley of Eshkol. And we see in the book of Numbers that they're carrying a large things of grapes. And the conclusion is, the land is a good land. Now, look at verse 25. And this is again going to read something particularly to those who just studied Numbers. What is a little different about verse 25 than we see in Numbers 13 and 14? What's different? David? It's, uh, it was a bad land 
because it consumes the people. Okay, they did say that. You're right. But originally, report that remember they said these are good land to which you send us. In that, in that, they did they did say what David said around verse thirty-one, thirty-two. But originally, they said it's a good land to which the Lord, to which you send us. I'm talking about Moses. The point in, in Numbers, they don't specifically mention God to the fight. Here, they do. They, they, they say it is a good land that the Lord is about to give us. But the people, the people don't believe. As they, they believe the ten unfaithful spies who say we can't take it, instead of the two faithful spies who said we can. And, and then they revert to say, oh, the land is a bad land. And it can suit them. And, and what the people say in verse 26 and 27, the people say is largely the things the spies said. The people are too tall and the cities are fortified to heaven. But, but I want you to notice what in this series of verses from 26 to 33 are the passages that are the deepest and richest theologically to me in this first chapter. In verse 26, Yet you were not willing to go out, but rebelled at the command of the Lord. They rebelled at the command of the Lord. In verse 27, you grumbled in your tent, saying, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out from the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Let me ask you, beg you to look at verse 27. Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us into the land. The prime evidence given in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, that God loves His people, is they were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That was the primary evidence of his love. They were slaves and God delivered them. God rescued them and brought them out of bondage. If we don't have faith in God's promises and trust God's word, we will even reinterpret the nature of God. We will reinterpret his nature. We will see things that are clear evidence of His love as evidence of Him. Because the Lord hates us. He has brought us into the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy it. Was God bringing them up to deliver them into the hand of the Amorites? Or was God bringing them out of Egypt to deliver the Amorites into their hand? You see, they turned everything upside down. Because the Lord hates us. He's brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us over into the hands of the Amorites. And they asked in verse 28, where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, the people are bigger and taller than we, and the cities are large and fortified to heaven, 
And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. And the Anakim who are mentioned at the end of the verse seem to have been a particularly large people. They will be mentioned again in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3 in that context. But they made our hearts melt. Now, again, look at, look at verse 28, that phrase, they made our hearts melt. You remember what the spies reported? Uh, Rahab said, when she comes back, uh, when she, when Rahab speaks to spies in the land of Canaan, in Joshua 2.11, she said, our hearts melt because of you. It should have been the enemy's hearts that were melting before Israel. But now these spies have brought back a bad report. And they, their hearts are melting in fear before their opponents. The, the people are taller than we, and the seas are higher than we. Now, before we leave, this doesn't have any application. Why if we're mocked about our faith? To a person who has more degrees than we have, more sophistication than we have, better speaker than we have. Does this have any application of Do not fear. They may be bigger. Their cities may be fortified. Don't fear. May God help us all to practice. It doesn't matter the size of people. It doesn't matter the size of the walls. What did Moses say? Verse 29. Do not be shocked, nor fear them. Now, what evidence do these people have that God can hear them? What evidence do they have? Well, in verse 30, they have the evidence... The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for, for you in Egypt before your eyes. You remember when the Israelites came to the Red Sea and the Egyptians and their chariots, their horses and chariots were on one side and the sea was on another. The people first cried out to the Lord. Then they began to complain. Moses, are there no graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us out to die in the wilderness? And Moses said, stand still and see, for the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. There was no way for Israel to get out of this situation well. Egypt was on one side, the sea was on the other, faced drowning by the sea or death by the sword by the Egyptians. And God divided the sea and caused Israel to cross over. And then, then um, the, the Egyptians were drowned in the sea. Because God fought for them in the past. At the time these words are said, that happened a year before. It happened about a year before. The Lord who fought for you will fight for you again. And God has cared for you in the wilderness just like a man cares for his son. You know what we're going to learn later in Deuteronomy 29? That while they were going through the wilderness, their shoes did not wear out. And their clothes did not wear out. God carried them 
God carried them. God lifted them. Just like a man carries his son. But verse 32 says, But for all this, you did not trust the Lord your God, who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and in cloud by day to show you the way which you should go. You didn't trust God in spite of God's provision in the past. In spite of God fighting for you in the past, you didn't trust Him. But it says you got, you went out to seek a the God was going before you in verse 33 to seek out a place for you to count. Now, the word translated seek in verse 33, let me tell you something about it. It's used 23 times in the Old Testament. Twelve of the times it's used is in Numbers 13 and 14 to talk about the size searching out the land. It's talked about the human size Searching out the land of Canaan. But here, who's doing the spot? Who's doing the seeking? It's not, it's not, it's not the spot, it's God. While the spies may be going out, they may search out the land, God was already going before them to seek out the place. Now, you have just been introduced to what's going to be our problem. This this semester is uh, a time limit and 